It's almost time, kids. The clock is ticking. Be in front of your TV sets for the horathon, and remember the big giveaway at nine. Don't miss it, and don't forget to wear your masks. The clock is ticking. It's almost time. Happy Happy Halloween, all you listeners, and welcome to this Halloween episode of the Nasty Pasty Podcast. Now, we don't make any pumpkin pies or cauldron cakes here, but we do cover horror movies from the Video Nasty era that avoided prosecution from the UK Inquisition, either through mundane video covers, poor distribution, or just plain obscurity. As you all know, we don't cover the official nasties, even though I'd love to, because it's been done quite often, but in the event that you do want to browse the other podcasts, and quite frankly, who could blame you, the nasties can be found on the Strange and Deadly show, or the Video Nasties podcast, both of which are on iTunes currently. It's me, Andy Roberts, again, and I absolutely love this time of year. All colours of autumn are probably the prettiest that Britain ever looks. And I'm actually donned in my Halloween outfit right now as I'm recording, just before I'm going out. I'm dressed as the Babadook from the recent Australian horror film of the same name. Has anyone seen this film? Because I absolutely loved it. But what's everyone else dressed as this year? And more importantly, is it either Michael Myers or Freddy Krueger? Yes. We've reached one of those episodes where we're covering decidedly more well-known horror pictures, with today's theme of classic slashes. As you've probably guessed from that question earlier... We'll be covering the classic John Carpenter's Halloween and Wes Craven's equally classic A Nightmare on Elm Street. There's really not much to say about these films, as they've been critically appraised and analysed and reviewed pretty much to death, similar to our previous episode on Friday the 13th Part 3 and 4. So instead, we'll be taking a similar approach and mostly doling out a crap ton of trivia to do with the films, as well as their ensuing franchises that came afterwards. So let's start our Halloween episode with John Carpenter's masterpiece.
In the 1960s, six-year-old Michael Myers stabs his sister Judith to death on Halloween night whilst donned in a clown outfit. Years later in 1978, Dr Loomis, along with Nurse Chambers, arrives at Smith's Grove Sanitarium to transfer Myers in order to attend a court hearing. Becoming alarmed at patients wandering outside, Loomis exits the car only for Myers to break into it, scaring Nurse Chambers into leaving the vehicle, and Michael drives off. Loomis deduces that Myers will return to his home in Haddonfield and heads there, encountering a dead mechanic on the way back. In Haddonfield, teenager Laurie Strode heads to school with her neighbour Tommy Doyle and is routinely stalked by Michael Myers throughout the day. Her friends Annie and Linda brush off her concern and merely think that it's just an admirer of hers. Loomis meets up with Sheriff Brackett, Annie's father, after discovering Judith's headstone missing from the local cemetery and warns him about Myers and his propensity to commit more murder. When night falls, Laurie goes over to babysit Tommy while her friend Annie babysits Lindsay Wallace across the street, the two girls gossiping over the phone, unaware that Michael is nearby killing Lindsay's dog. Annie's boyfriend Paul calls her to meet up, prompting Annie to take Lindsay over to Tommy's house so that Laurie can watch over them. Upon her return to the car, Michael appears in the back of the car and strangles her before slitting her throat. Soon after, Linda and her boyfriend Bob arrive at the Wallace house to have sex. Bob goes downstairs to get a beer and is stabbed and pinned to a wall by Myers. Going upstairs in a sheet, Myers pretends to be Bob, irritating Linda when he does not respond and causing her to phone Laurie. During the call, Michael strangles her to death with a telephone cord, alarming Laurie, who goes to investigate. Gaining access, Laurie soon comes across the bodies of her friends and Judith's tombstone upstairs, and is suddenly attacked by Myers, causing her to fall down the stairs. Barely getting back to the Doyle house, Laurie repels Michael with a knitting needle, as well as a coat hanger when she hides in a closet. Seemingly dead, Laurie sends the children out to get help and they run through the streets, attracting the attention of Loomis. Unaware that he's rising from the floor, Laurie is suddenly strangled by Michael just as Loomis turns up and opens fires on him. In pursuit, Loomis fires another five rounds into him, causing Michael to fall off the balcony and land on the ground. After explaining to Laurie that he believed he's the boogeyman, Loomis looks onto the garden where Michael's body has disappeared, his breathing still audible. As usual, I have nothing to do. It's your own fault, and I don't feel a bit sorry for you. Hey, Linda, Lori, why didn't you wait for me? We did. Fifteen minutes. You totally never showed. That's not true. Here I am. What's wrong, Annie? You're not smiling. I'm never smiling again. Paul dragged me into the boys' locker room. Exploring uncharted territory. Totally charted. Just talk. Sure, sure. Old Jerko got caught throwing eggs and soaping windows. His parents grounded him. He can't come over to her. I thought you were babysitting to me. The only reason she babysits is to have a place for shit. I have a place for that. I forgot my chemistry book. So who cares? I always forget my chemistry book and my math book and my English book and my, let's see, my French book and, well, who needs books anyway? I don't need books. I always forget all of my books. I mean, it doesn't really matter if you have your books or not. Hey, isn't that Devon Graham? I don't think so. I think he's cute. Hey, jerk! Speed kills! 
Very famous for setting up the recognisable template of the slasher film, Halloween was born from an original script entitled The Babysitter Murders, which depicted a murderer killing babysitters over the course of a few days. Producer Erwin Yablans, however, came up with the concept of condensing the events into one night, and entitling the film Halloween, as no previous movie had the concept before. And then John Carpenter came onto the project, who was very interested in that idea. The script began to take shape, with Carpenter writing most of Dr Loomis's dialogue, while producer Deborah Hill focused on the teenage girl's dialogue. Carpenter's um, vision for the film was to be a bit like a jack-in-the-box, with scares every ten minutes. Inspired by Black Christmas, and with the negative reception of the gratuity in Assault on Precinct 13, Carpenter wanted no gore in the film, and instead wrote moments of well-crafted suspense. The film was set in the fictional town of Haddonfield, named after the hometown of Deborah Hill, while Carpenter named the main protagonist Laurie Strode after his first girlfriend. Dr. Loomis was named after the character of Sam Loomis from Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho, one of the merry references to the film. Janet Lee, who played Marion Crane in that film, was of course the mother of Jamie Lee Curtis, while the sound of stabbing in this film was achieved with a watermelon, the same technique as in Psycho. The unseen character of Ben Tramer was named after a friend of Carpenter's, while Michael Myers himself was named after the European distributor of Carpenter's previous film, Assault on Precinct 13. The Michael Myers character is only referred to as the shape in the script, based on the Salem Witch Trials, which described someone's seemingly sinister actions as being perpetrated by their shape, or spectre. Trying to get the audience to eschew any feeling towards Myers, he wrote him as a spectral boogeyman with elements of Yul Brynner's android character from Westworld. The backstory of a child of evil was based on Carpenter's own experience on a college trip at a psychiatric institution, where he saw a schizophrenic teenager with eyes of evil which terrified him. While the film's template is the first instance of teenagers who indulge in sex and drugs that are guaranteed to die, Carpenter and Deborah Hill have stated that this was not on purpose, and have stated that Laurie Strode's character simply survives because she's not preoccupied with having sex. Even further, Carpenter believes that Laurie is actually the most sexual character, since she unleashes her frustration in the form of continued stabbings upon the killer. Producer Mustafa Akkad had little interest in Halloween until Carpenter threw out a figure of only $300,000 to make the film. When it was very successful, Akkad then made every sequel possible as he was eager to make a buck. The film was shot in just 20 days and in the late spring of 1978. A little bit of extra trivia here, October 31st of 1978 when the film is supposed to be set was actually a Tuesday the same as this year. Because the film was shot in the spring and in California rather than Illinois, there were little signs of actual fallabout. The crew struggled to find pumpkins and had to buy paper leaves and paint them in autumnal colours. Local kids dressed in costume for the background shots, and the budget was so low that the painted leaves were collected after each shot to be reused in another. Unfortunately, the trees are still green in the movie, whereas in Illinois, the trees would definitely be empty. All of the actors had to wear their own clothes. Jamie Lee Curtis bought her clothes for the role for less than $100 at JCPenney. Even though it worked to the film's advantage, the constant dark shots were mostly due to not having enough money to purchase lights, especially after half the budget was spent on the Panavision cameras alone. The opening shot was meant to be a tracking shot of the paths, until it was changed to the now iconic shot of the jack-o'-lantern. 
The Maya's house was an empty residential place in South Pasadena, which was in a massive state of disrepair, forcing the crew to redecorate and have the utilities reinstalled to make it look like someone actually lives there. For the strong contrasts of orange and blue, cinematographer Dean Cundy, who would later work on The Thing with Carpenter, as well as Jurassic Park and Back to the Future, took inspiration from the 1974 film Chinatown. The memorable opening scene set in the 60s with young Michael appears to be one long continuous shot, but there's actually three edits in there hidden. The whole scene took two days alone to film and they couldn't get the young actor to play the point of view yet either, so Deborah Hill stood in for the killer during these scenes. Tony Moran, who plays the unmasked Michael briefly saw later on, explains that no less than six people played the shape at various points, simply depending on who was nearby whilst on set. Nick Castle, who played the shape the most, had very simple direction which usually consisted of moving from one marker to another, with occasional flares like tilting his head to examine Bob's corpse. Some more technical effects were also used in the film, such as a wrench being stuck to Michael's forearm and painted flesh-coloured so that the car window would break instantly on cue. Also, a small dimmer switch was used at the end to give the impression that Michael is emerging from the darkness behind Laurie when she discovers her dead friends. The original ending of the film had Dr Loomis looking shocked when discovering Michael's body is gone, but Pleasance himself asked that he not react at all, as though he suspected it would happen altogether. This version ended up in the final cut, while the alternative take of him looking shocked was used in the sequel Halloween 2. The now infamous mask was originally going to be an Emmett Kelly-style clown mask to keep with the theme of Judith's murder while he was wearing a clown outfit. However, the crew eventually found a Captain Kirk mask for just $2 that resembled William Shatner, and they customised it with white paint, making the hair wilder and the eyes wider. The emotionless expression soon became synonymous with Michael Myers, and the legend was born from that day. A Richard Nixon mask was also considered, but discarded until Halloween 5 would use the mask in one sequence. On a side note, the poster in Laurie's room depicts James Enser, who was an expressionist, painting, uh, was an expressionist painter who frequently painted humans wearing masks. And on the themes of disguises, the film that Tommy and Lindsay are watching is The Thing from Another World, which is about an alien life form that changes its appearance. Carpenter himself would remake this particular film in 1982. Before Jamie Lee Curtis won the role, Anne Lockhart was the first choice for Carpenter, but Carpenter eventually thought of the homage to Hitchcock when he offered the role to Janet Lee's daughter. It was the first role for Curtis, who was still only a teenager herself, and she accepted a modest $8,000 for the role. Due to her naivety, she felt that she'd done a terrible job after just the first day, and she was surprised when Carpenter called her to congratulate her on the performance. The film was shot out of sequence, however, prompting Carpenter to give Jamie Lee Curtis a fear meter to give her the impression of how scared that she should be reacting. A huge variety of actors were considered for Sam Loomis's character, including Peter Cushing, Peter O'Toole, Mel Brooks, Walter Matthau, uh, Lawrence Tierney, Kirk Douglas, John Belushi, Chris Christopherson, David Carradine, Dennis Hopper, Yul Brynner, and even Christopher Lee, who has since said that it was a mistake to turn it down. Carpenter was very enamoured of Donald Pleasance, who had accepted mostly due to his daughter's love of assault on Precinct 13, and was actually nervous of directing him, but the two eventually became very good friends on set. 
All of Pleasance's scenes were done in just five days, and he was paid $20,000 for his role. Linda was played by P.J. Souls, who had appeared previously in Brian De Palma's Carrie, and the role was written specifically for her. Bob was meant to be played by P.J. Souls' current boyfriend, Dennis Quaid, but shooting conflicts led to the role going to John Michael Graham instead. Nancy Keyes, who played Annie, would eventually marry the production designer, Tommy Lee Wallace, and would reappear as her own corpse in Halloween 2, as well as a new role in Halloween 3 Season of the Witch. Carpenter himself plays the voice of Annie's boyfriend, Paul. Having no soundtrack on the initial cut, Carpenter composed the hallowed soundtrack in just four days with the very rare 5 out of 4 time signature. The theme tune is now forever recognisable in pop culture, second only to Friday the 13th's more memorable soundtrack. The film was released on October 25th, 1978, opening in Kansas City, Missouri, and went on to have an incredible, incredibly successful box office run, grossing $47 million by the end of the run. With adjustments for inflation, Halloween is probably one of the most successful independent films of all time, and entered the United States National Film Registry in 2006 for being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. Critics also praised its emphasis on building suspense and batan tension without using splatter or gore, with Roger Ebert himself explaining that it was one of the scariest experiences he'd ever had in the cinema. Back in the day, Media Video released the film on VHS in the UK. Now, Media Video were already in the spotlight of the DPP by releasing the Section 3 nasties like Demented and Home Sweet Home. It's really not that difficult to think of the police seizing Halloween, especially due to its reputation of being responsible for starting off the slasher craze that bloomed fully in the 80s. It wasn't long before another release would appear in 1986, and the film's had multiple releases since. All uncut, of course, as there just simply isn't enough blood in the film to cut. On a side note, there is an extended edition of the film that features additional scenes which were filmed during the filming of Halloween 2 in 1981. And I haven't seen if this is available in the UK, but this TV version is worth seeking out for fans of the film. And that was John Carpenter's Halloween. So we'll get straight on to the next one on our list, which is Wes Craven's Nightmare on Elm Street.
Fifteen-year-old Tina Gray is stalked through a boiler room and attacked by a disfigured man wearing a bladed glove. She awakens soon, it actually being a nightmare, but her mother points out four mysterious slashes on her nightgown. The following morning, Tina is consoled by best friend Nancy and her boyfriend Glenn. Later that evening, Nancy and Glenn sleep over at Tina, following her mother's out-of-town departure, and the sleepover is interrupted by Tina's boyfriend, Rod. Falling asleep, Tina sees the man in her dreams and runs. Awakened by Tina's thrashing, Rod witnesses her being slashed by an unseen person. He flees as Nancy and Glenn find Tina, and mistakenly they blame Rod. Nancy tells her father, Lieutenant Don Thompson, of Tina's demise. The next day, Rod is arrested by Don despite his pleas of innocence, and at school, Nancy falls asleep in class and finds the strange man calling himself Freddy Krueger, who chases her into a boiler room. Nancy suddenly burns her arm on a pipe and suddenly awakens in class, and notices the burn mark on her arm and is suddenly concerned. At home, Nancy falls asleep in the bathtub and nearly gets drowned by Freddy Krueger again. Nancy goes to see Rod in prison, who tells her what happened to Tina, and Nancy believes that Freddy is the one who's truly responsible for Tina's death. Nancy has Glenn watch over her as she falls asleep, so that she can experiment and try to find Freddy. She soon finds Freddy, and sees him preparing to kill Rod. He soon turns his attention on her, and she runs and wakes up when her alarm clock goes off. Nancy and Glenn rush over to the jail, but discover Rod is already dead in his cell in an apparent suicide using the bedsheets. At Rod's funeral, Nancy's parents become worried when she describes the man in her dreams, and in reaction, her mother Marge takes her to a dream clinic. In the, in the clinic, Nancy is attacked again while dreaming and grabs Freddy's hat, and when the staff wakes her up, she has a gash on her arm and Freddy's hat in her possession. At home, Marge buys security bars for the windows and begins to drink heavily. She soon tells Nancy that Freddy was a child murderer released on a technicality, so in a form of vigilante justice, the parents on the neighbourhood street, or Elm Street, burned him alive. Realising that Freddy desires revenge, Nancy convinces Glenn to help her. She plans to bring Freddy back into the real world in the same way as the hat, and sets up booby traps in her house. But concerned over her influence, Glenn's parents prevent the two from meeting. Glenn unfortunately falls asleep at the appointed hour, and Freddy kills him and releases his blood into a large geyser in his room. Alone, Nancy puts Marge to bed and asks Don, who is across the street, to break into the house in 20 minutes. In her sleep, she locates Freddy at the last second and pulls him out of the dream. In the real world, Nancy runs from Freddy, who trips on the booby traps, and she soon lights him on fire when he follows her into the basement. The police soon arrive, and they realise that Freddy has actually escaped the basement, with a trail of fire being left behind. In Marge's bedroom, they see a still-burning Freddy smother her. After Don puts out the fire, Freddy and Marge have both gone, and despite her father's words, Nancy still believes that she's in danger. Freddy soon appears from within the mattress, and realising that he's powered by his victim's fear, Nancy turns her back on him and reduces him to nothingness. She steps outside into a suddenly bright morning, where her friends and mother are all still alive. She gets into Glenn's car to go to school, when suddenly the top comes down and the car locks itself and drives uncontrollably down the street. Marge while waving, is suddenly grabbed through the window of the front door by Freddy's gloved hand, and is dragged through. How long has this been going on? Since the murderers. 
She was fine before that. Now she thinks her dreams are real. Well, there's no sign of pathology in her EEG. I guess that what we have is just a normal girl who happens to have gone through two days of hell. What's she doing now? Is she asleep or awake? Something's wrong. It, it never gets this high. What's she doing? Is she dreaming? Wes Craven's idea for the film came to him from a series of articles in the newspaper at the time in which multiple southeastern Asian men were mysteriously dying in their sleep. All of them were refugees from Pol Pot, and the otherwise healthy men would complain of nightmares and try to stay awake as long as possible before succumbing to their slumber and dying when they screamed suddenly in the middle of the night. Today, it's believed that it was a variation of sudden unexpected death syndrome, but the intricacies and details of the deaths intrigued Craven. He began creating the character of Fred Krueger, originally a child molester in the original script, who preyed upon children in their dreams while brandishing a metal claw and displaying rotten pus-filled sores with fragments of his skull exposed. The idea of the glove was not only to give Kruger a unique look and a freakish weapon, but also to evoke the primal fear that humans have of animal claws. The character being able to murder within dreams had been done in 1982's The Slayer, which ended up as a video nasty. But Craven's example took some inspiration from Eastern religions and the concept of dream demons. Despite the title of the film, Elm Street is not mentioned once in the script, 
and the original draft had some difference with actually the final product. Freddy's sweater was originally yellow and red in reference to the plastic man who could change his form. But Craven changed his mind after reading a Scientific American article that claimed the two most contrasting colours to the human eye were red and green. Tina's original age was just 15 in the script. The scene in which Nancy's mother explains about what she did to Kruger was longer and elaborated on a sibling of Nancy's that Kruger killed when she was younger, as well as Marge explaining that she shot Kruger personally after he appeared to survive the initial flames. Also, several endings were scripted, as Craven originally wanted the film to end happily, with Kruger definitively defeated. Producer Rob Shea, however, wanted the film to be open for sequels, and scripted the ending that actually ended in the final edit. Wes Craven's finished script was completed in 1981, but it didn't get picked up until 1984 when New Line Cinema offered to do the film. Principal photography started in early 1984, and it wrapped in just 30 days. The film's location was originally meant to be Los Angeles, which is where the main bulk of the film was shot, but the script was changed to make the location ambiguous. In the sequels, the location would be established as the fictional Springwood in Ohio. The iconic house, 1428 Elm Street, that belongs to Nancy, was located on North Genesee Avenue, though eagle-eyed viewers will notice that the door is blue in this first film, while it's red in all subsequent sequels. The boiler room was the basement of Lincoln Heights Jail in Los Angeles, which was demolished shortly after filming due to asbestos. Of course, with the film regarding dreams, the film did require a great deal of special effects and technical tricks. Fred Krueger's makeup alone took three hours to put on Robert Englund, and was based on pictures of burn victims from the UCLA Medical Centre. The infamous sweater was noticeably lacking the stripes on the sleeves in this film, but they were in every sequel since. The glove constructed in the opening sequence was not made by Englund, rather it was special effects guy Charles Bellardinelli, as he was the only one who knew how the glove would come together. There's also some speculation that the blades used on the glove were either tomato knives or steak knives. Regardless, they were pretty sharp, as England cut himself the first time he tried the glove on. The iconic screeching sound was done by scratching a knife over a metal chair underside, and the visible sparking effect was created by attaching the glove to a car battery. This glove was reused in Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2, but was sadly lost on the set of Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3, forcing the sequels to recreate the weapon. Kruger's elongated arms were done by using puppet arms attached to fishing poles, which were operated off-screen by crewmen, while the, French, while the phone French kiss were used a rubber prosthetic, which Heather Langenkamp liked so much she actually asked to keep it afterwards. No less than 500 gallons of fake blood were used in the film, a lot of which was used in Johnny Depp's Blood Geyser of a Death, which was inspired by The Shining. This effect was achieved by using a rotating set, which was turned upside down with the blood poured down the hole, and filmed with an upside down camera to make the room appear normal. The effect ran into a bit of a hitch when the blood poured prematurely, and went out of the door causing the electrics to short circuit. Thankfully, no one was hurt and the shot was ultimately completed successfully. The same set was used in Tina's murder to give the illusion that she was levitating above the bed. The shot in which Rod is reaching out to her was filmed in reverse. Amanda Weiss was actually on the floor, while Sue Garcia was strapped to the ceiling with his hair gelled back so that it would not head towards the floor. The effect was so convincing that Amanda Weiss had trouble doing the scene without getting severe vertigo. 
When Nancy's attacked in the bathtub, the shot was achieved using a bottomless bathtub over a swimming pool, with stump woman Christina Johnson standing in for Langenkamp, who ultimately had to spend a total of 12 hours in the bath while filming that particular scene. The scene in which Nancy's pursued up the melting stairs was done using a mix of pancake mix and mushroom soup. No one knows quite exactly what the consistency was, but the scene itself was directed by Robert Shea, who suggested it based on the common dream trope of hampered running ability. When Nancy is stalked by Freddy in the wall, the crew used a sheet of spandex and simply pressed into it for the desired effect, though Freddy was in this instance portrayed by special effects designer Jim Doyle. The impressive scene where Kruger is set alight and chases Nancy was done in one single take with several cameras, earning the stuntman, Anthony Sosia, the Stunt of the Year award. While a lot went right for the film, there were a couple of mishaps that occurred during production. Apart from Ing England cutting himself on the glove and the blood geyser causing some electrical damage, actress Heather Langenkamp cut open her foot while she was filming the scene where she's chased into the house by Kruger, with a visible limp evident in the final edit. She had to have it stitched, which is just about noticeable in the melting staircase sequence. She was also accidentally slapped in the scene with Ronnie Blakely while they were filming the sequence in the kitchen of Nancy and her mother arguing. Though the final cut of the film did use an alternative take, which was clearly not the slapping question. In the ending too, the Kruger coloured convertible top flapped down much quicker than anticipated, and the look of surprise on the actors' faces is quite genuine. Since Craven had helped his friend Sean S. Cunningham on the Section 3 nasty Friday the 13th, Cunningham helped Craven out by shooting some footage for Nightmare on Elm Street, especially on the other units. In homage to Cunningham's franchise of Friday the 13th, Jason Voorhees' mask is visible in Nancy's room, as well as the presence of the Evil Dead being watched by Nancy as a homage to Sam Raimi, who had frequent back and forths with Craven in their movies. Before the final edit, the work print of the film had an incomplete soundtrack and scenes actually used music from the Section 3 video nasty, Final Exam. While Craven did not initially want an actor for Kruger, after testing unsuccessfully with some stuntmen, Robert Englund was chosen for the role. He based the character's gait on Klaus Kinski's vampiric performance in 1979's Nosferatu the Vampire. Heather Langenkamp won the role, while against approximately 200 other actresses, including Demi Moore, Jennifer Grey, and Courtney Cox. She was roughly 19 or 20 at the time of filming, making it rather humorous when Nancy exclaims that she looks about 20 years old. Her boyfriend at the time of filming was the one who's credited with composing the nursery rhyme that has since become synonymous with the series. Langenkamp hadn't seen many horror films before getting the role, similar to Amanda Weiss, who played the ill-fated Tina. Johnny Depp got his first on-screen role as Nancy's boyfriend Glenn, hired mainly because Craven's daughter found him attractive. Nicolas Cage, Kiefer Sutherland, Brad Pitt, John Cusack and Charlie Sheen were all considered for the role of Glenn, with Sheen reportedly wanting too much money for the job. Roy Scheider was considered for the role of Lieutenant Thompson, but turned it down due to scheduling conflicts, so the part went to veteran actor John Saxon, who'd previously appeared in Black Christmas and the video nasty film Cannibal Apocalypse. There are also some minor appearances from some other famous faces, one of which is Lynn Shea, sister of the producer Rob Shea, and she went on to have a prolific career in cult horror films such as Critters, Snakes on a Plane and Insidious. 
Robert Shea played the voice of the news reporter, as well as the radio host that Glenn's listening to when he's fallen asleep. The doctor at the sleep clinic was played by Charles Fleischer, who was more famously known as the voice of Roger Rabbit, while the nurse was played by Mimi Craven, who was Wes Craven's wife at the time. The film evidently ran into some production problems too when it came to funding. Smart Egg Productions dropped out of funding the film several days before principal photography was about to start. It took a while, but eventually Rob Shea managed to broker a deal with them to finance the money. The processing lab, too, were threatening to withhold the negative, as they hadn't been paid just a few days before the film was due to be released. New Cinema were already very wary of producing the film, as their first outing, 1982's Alone in the Dark, which starred Jack Palance and John Donald Pleasance, performed very poorly on an already limited theatrical run. Thankfully, the film made back its $1.8 million budget on the opening weekend and brought New Line Cinema from the brink of bankruptcy, and today the film is known colloquially as the house that Freddie built, due to the film's large success. It of course went on to spawn six sequels, as well as a crossover film with Jason Voorhees called Freddy vs. Jason. Now, as the film wasn't released until 1984, the film was released just at the close of the Nasty Scandal, having an uncut release on VHS at the very end of the year. It had very many versions on VHS through the 80s and 90s, until... Oh, it had many versions on the VHS through the 80s, until the 90s arrived when the MPAA cut version replaced the film as the standard version in all territories. This version is missing five seconds from Tina's corpse hitting the bed with the resultant blood splashes, while Glenn's death is trimmed of eight seconds of excessive blood flow. And annoyingly, the uncut version hasn't surfaced in the country since, so we're all unfortunately stuck with the censored version for now. And that was Nightmare on Elm Street and the end of the show for this week, guys. Now, I'd love to hear what you think of these two, because if you've not seen them, then where have you really been, honestly? Send any feedback you'd like to nastypastypodcast at gmail.com, or tweet it to me at nastypastypod, or you can send it to our Facebook page if you just search for Nasty Pasty. Now, next week, we're exploring a genre that I know a lot of people are very fond of, and include myself in that. It's Jello Week next week. And we're covering two classic Giallo films for you. They are Mario Barva's Blood and Black Lace and Dario Argento's The Bird with the Crystal Plumage. But that's not all. Since it's Halloween, there is an extra bit of candy for you all to nibble on, as there's a special extra episode where I'm covering the return of Michael Myers in 1981's Halloween 2. And this should be available for all of you towards the end of this week as well. So please do enjoy. And apart from that, do have a wonderful remainder of your Halloween, and I'll see you all next week, guys. Farewell! Farewell.